0: I wanted at the start of this conference, or oh, I should say before that even, I did want to see people if they have any questions, and I have seen about four. There was one gentleman who asked me last night, but he didn't turn up, uh, and I'd like him to come first. Otherwise, all the other people hang around. I can't take them because I'm afraid he's coming. So if you, after this talk, I'll go to my little room. And I want to start the talk by, with a reading from an American novel. Um, and this is called the Second Coming, a novel by Walker Pierce. I don't know anything about him except he's got apparently a great reputation, and he's written one of these cheerful modern books where uh, both the leading characters have had electric shock treatments. So if anyone's cracked in the audience might find it helpful. But it starts like this: It was a fine Sunday morning. The foursome teed off early and finished about noon. He drove through town on Church Street. Churchgoers were emerging from the 11 o'clock service. As they stood blinking and smiling in the brilliant sunlight, they seemed without exception well-dressed, prosperous, healthy, and happy. He passed the following churches, some on the left, some on the right. The Christian Church, the Church of Christ, the Church of God, the Church of God in Christ, the Church of Christ in God, the Assembly of God, Bethel Baptist Church, Independent Presbyterian Church, United Methodist Church, and the Immaculate Heart of Mary Roman Catholic Church. Two signs pointed down into the hollow red African Methodist Episcopal Church, four blocks, and Starlight Baptist Church, eight blocks. One sign pointed up to a pine grove on the ridge, which read, St. John of the Woods Episcopal Church, six blocks. He lived in the most Christian nation in the world, the United States, in the most Christian part of the nation, the South, in the most Christian state of the South, North Carolina, in the most Christian town in North Carolina. Well, if anybody comes to North Carolina, they can verify that fact but the odd thing is when we read all those churches not all sincere very holy people uh, running them all hoping that they're spreading the gospel some with two sacraments some with one some with none some with bishops some without bishops some for africans only you suddenly wonder what the heck happens when you read the acts of the apostles and see how we started you do see what the need for praying for reunion among all those who love God. And that is what Cardinal Newman puts before us in this conference. He had the same kind of world where there were all these thousands of churches and everybody is sincere, all interpreting the Bible as they feel the Holy Spirit wants and producing something not much more attractive than United Nations. So Newman then gives us a very easy text for his talk. And I find this may help some of us a great deal. It's a text which you and I know well and which we attribute to charity because it comes from that very famous chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. I've never heard it applied to ourselves in this way. Um, The apostle wrote... When I was a child, my speech, my outlook, and my thoughts were childish. When I grew up, I had finished with childish things. That's the new translation, new English. We know the old one. When I was a child, I thought as a child, but now that I've grown up, I put away the things of a child. Did you ever hear us talk in a chapel saying, don't be babies, put away the things of a child? Only Cardinal Newman would have the neck to do that. And I think all those ministers, including the Catholic priests, probably in those churches might think about this. But anyway, you and I have to say, as I grow up, I must stop being childish. Newman starts off by saying how childish the apostles were before the resurrection. And he gives lists to show that they too, when they first met Jesus, had quite the wrong end of the stick. Knowing the scriptures so well, he gives the examples. He puts here, If we look at the disciples before Pentecost, we see them as uncertain, as children with childish ideas, ignorant, prejudiced. What was it but childish to ask, as St. Peter did, how many times do we have to forgive our neighbour? That's something your little boy or girl would say, how many times, Daddy? Daddy. Or show us the Father, as Philip said, and that'll be enough. Or, when Peter said at the Transfiguration, I will b- build three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elias. The vision disappeared before he'd even got his hammer together. <laughs> and what the heck would they have done with these tents after that? It's very, it's very interesting. The, or you've got Peter, James and John, and Mrs. Zebedee, all trying to scheme to come first. Mrs. Zebedee tried to steal the two best seats in heaven for her boys. Mothers play that sort of part in the Catholic Church, certainly. So Mrs. Zebedee and her two boys were already trying to bag the best seats in the next world. All those things were childish. Then, as Newman says, now look, after the Holy Spirit had come, and you find a total change in the Acts of the Apostles. And therefore, it's marvellous, right from the very start, even before the Holy Ghost came, the disciples, who'd seen our Lord died, and been so completely knocked out, they immediately began to organise. They had a primary, the first primary election in history, before the Holy Ghost came, and Matthias was chosen to make up the number 12. So our Lord must have told them that there had to be twelve. Somebody must, that they knew at once, and they had this election, and Matthias took the place of Judas. They then started the beginning of a Christian program. They went to the temple every morning and said read the scriptures and prayed with the Jews, and then they came home and had the breaking of bread, as we know, in their house. They had, they're like we have mass in a retreat. Already they would got a pattern. You find the extraordinary thing, with, as, uh, as Cardinal Newman points out, uh, that not only do, did they do that, but then nobody moved without the consent of the Twelve. Everybody was commissioned. All these funny men here, and us and all going around opening churches and being messiahs, and it didn't <coughs> happen in the Acts at all. When Philip the deacon was sent to Samaria, he had to clear it with the 12 and came back and reported and when peter went to the house of cornelius he came back and explained that he'd received this pagan into the church this gentile and then paul and barnabas were selected to go to antioch and they went under authority with barnabas in charge for the first year or two and then and Paul was put in charge and Barnabas became second. You'll find it's always Saul and Barnabas at the beginning and then suddenly Paul becomes the leading partner and Barnabas comes in second. All this was most wonderfully done. The sense of obedience, even as to whether they should receive Gentiles, they had a debate and eventually the Twelve spoke. So far from being babies as they had been before, not understanding, they suddenly became mature men. And Newman, when he quoted that thing, When I was a child, I thought as a child, says that the first mark of the Holy Ghost is to make us mature. He preached other marvellous sermons on the Holy Spirit, uh, but in this sermon that I found so helpful, that maturity should be a very considerable thing in our lives that we should be mature Christians and put away the things of a child. Actually, he quotes St. John, that great speech our Lord made at the Last Supper, where he said, I'm going away, but I won't leave you orphans. That these first apostles were like orphans with no one to care for them. And our Lord said, no, I, I, I won't leave you orphans. I'll send the Holy Spirit and he'll teach you all the truths you need to know. That our Lord promised the Holy Spirit to give them maturity because he was, otherwise he was going to go away and they would be left there uh, with no guidance. That so The Holy Spirit played a key part in the whole of uh, the church history. It's his, his peer, it's his zone. But he was sent by, so that the apostles would not be immature, that they would be there and that they would grow up and put away childish things. I find that point very, very telling. And then Cardinal Newman goes on to say that he hesitates to condemn idle habits which are childish love of display, postponing duties, intolerance, personal appearance, popularity, being cheeky, assertive, name dropping, wanting things our way. He would have said, All those things are childish. He said, I wouldn't like to condemn them. I ought to follow. A wise parent's idea, leave the children alone, and they'll, as they grow up, they'll grow out of it. Which is a very Christian idea, not to say that's wrong, if a child is living by imagination, or whatever it is, but to say, well, we, the Holy Ghost will gradually help them to grow out of it. And you and I, in this retreat, and when we go home, we've got a duty to try, with the Holy Spirit's assistance, uh, to become mature Christians so that when we give our witness to the resurrection, people will listen because they know we are balanced. Now, then, what what could we call childish? Well, one of the first things I would have said childish um, are the juvenile images that we've acquired of spiritual things. One of the things is the resurrection of the body. And another one is the last judgment where, through the sisters may be, or it may be our mother at home, or it may be some picture book, or it could be a great artist, or it could be Dante's Inferno, we've got a terribly babyish outlook as regards death and then the resurrection of the body. I don't know what you think, but I'm always astonished to think of the... when we all rise to the last day and the trumpet blows and we all get out of our caskets and then we'll look for our dentures and get our wooden legs and, and then all go rushing up to the pearly gates. don't know what's going to happen to the, those who are cremated. They're going to have an awkward time. <laughs> but we've got these sort of funny pictures. It almost makes religion into a nonsense. No wonder people lapse if, they, if we're going to have that performance. And then we get to heaven. And, and what a funny heaven, like Mark Twain's heaven we've produced. I wonder if, if Dr. Billings, a great Australian gynaecologist, has the tapes later, he will laugh to hear of the story he told ten years ago at a medical school, uh, meeting in New Zealand, and I've remem- remembered it ever since, how when a whole lot of men died, they all went up to heaven, and when they got out of the elevator at heaven, there was one turnstile saying, for those who ne- the, who, whose wife nagged, and there was one turnstile for those who were bossy to their wives. And all the men went that way, except one man who went there. And Peter, St. Peter was so surprised, he rushed around to the man and said, what are you doing here? He said, I don't know. My wife told me to come to this one. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, okay. it's always stuck in my mind, because our idea of heaven is so extraordinary. And we've got, uh, we have these picture of a lamb on a throne and bishops swinging tourables. And we don't want to go there. I'd rather go to um, Bourbon Street than have sort of sing plain chant for all eternity. So our whole idea of heaven, which we thought about, even that sort of babyish. And then take the last judgment. How easily the last judgment... I feel terrified of the last judgment. Why? Because I'm afraid my neighbours are going to find out just what I did. The number of bottles in the cellar (laughs) and all sorts of lovelinesses I left behind my wife's not going to like those and then and all the cheating in the books it's amazing how frightened we all are i'm always frightened of the last judgment they'll suddenly put up the private life of father bassett will appear on the screen and you'll all say oh that's what he was doing when he said he was preparing his next talk (laughs) we're all terrified i'm much more frightened of my mother than god when I've squared God, I think my mother will call me aside for a few <laughs> a few additions that she... <laughs> so with so the Last Judgment, after all we know the Last Judgment, who's going to be the judge? Jesus, a man whose name means Saviour. And therefore all those pictures of the terror of the Last Judgment, not, they're not true. And therefore we have a baby's kind of religion, and I'm not surprised that a good number of people become atheists because of this. In the Council documents, they have a lovely page on Communism and how sad it is that many people who took up Marx and things ended up as atheists because of the errors of the Christians, who gave such bad example, paid poor wages, etc., and may have driven these people to be Communist. Luckily, their pictures so crazy, too. But you've got all those funny things to do with the resurrection of the body. What do we mean by the resurrection of the body? We believe what's extraordinary thing which occurs in Scripture. The right at the beginning of the Bible in Exodus 3 when Yahweh, God, sent Moses to Egypt to rescue the Jews he, God made a statement, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. thousands of years later, when our Lord came on earth, he was debating with the uh, people, the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection. Our Lord took the words that his father had used at the beginning and said, God is the God of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living, not the dead. He added that phrase, which as Newman says, to people who didn't believe in the resurrection, to say he's the God of the living, completely denied their major premise. That there was nothing living therefore what we are committed to is that people in the next world are living and God is their King and that they're alive now Abraham's alive now (coughs) Isaac's alive now Tertullian was asked what a Christian is and he said a Christian is somebody who believes that Jesus Christ is alive today that's what the resurrection means for me that Jesus is a real person the Holy Souls are real people one of the things that upset Newman so greatly uh, when he went to Naples as a Protestant was to see these posters of the Holy Souls swimming around in fire in bikinis and uh, is there any proof for that? None he as a young parson was rightly shocked to see this absurd travesty of what is taught about purgatory, which we'll think about at one of the last talks. So therefore, babyish things about the dead. The dead are alive, we know that, and when we say they're alive, they'll have that part of their body that is needed to make them themselves. Our body changed at every age, and so if you look at repeats on the television and see Elizabeth Taylor and Burton of ten years ago, you wonder which body they're going to have in heaven. When we put on weight, when we get gammy legs and things, uh, what, what age will my mother be when I meet her? She'll be only, be, be, have a, we think of a body before I was born. That won't be much good to me. No, but the silly part is, we believe in the resurrection of the body because we believe, unlike the pagans, that the body isn't just an instrument, but it is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That ma- amount of it, that is needed to make me, me, and alive, will be there. That's all we're committed to. And then you get, For Newman's remarkable thing about the host, when we say our Lord is living in the tabernacle. Newman says, quite rightly, that one of our troubles is that we uh, don't really understand anything about the body. he says that you know when you talk about the body all we always think about is the body as it's visible at this present moment but of course there's a, quite a difference a, a thing of the body we take for granted that our souls inside our body i don't know where we got that from people think their souls in their pancreas or somewhere and that the bodies are sort of casing it in i think my souls outside my body because i can cross the atlantic every day and talk to my friends in europe and love them my body is still here we've got no evidence to say that the soul is inside the body all we do know is that the body and the soul together make me and so just the same as with an apple when you eat an apple you're eating in a way part of the bark you're eating uh, the the leaves they've all played a part in it and what is certain is that the last day Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and my mother and myself and you will be complete and our Lord rose from the dead just to show us that our body does play a part otherwise he could have just gone to heaven and left his body in the grave and in the Blessed Sacrament all we know about the Blessed Sacrament is that when animals eat they eat to get nourishment and therefore when we go to communion our Lord gives us his body to nourish our souls how he does is, Newman says, we can't picture it we only know it can happen I don't know now, but I find now, with all our processed foods, you can buy sort of a whole of a, an ox in a pill. Vitamins, proteins, the whole damn thing, hair, bones, you just take two, and apparently you've eaten a, a part of a herd. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I ate all those awful grasshoppers, you see, I, I was nourished by grasshoppers in, da- in Dallas, Texas, and they were all disguised as almonds, and they, their bodies were there. Now, Newman uh, suggests that when we go to communion, all our Lord said was that he who eats this bread will live forever. How he does it, we don't know. And then he has a most striking passage, which I'll read to you about the real presence, which again shows how original he was, and this has quite changed in recent months my own attitude when saying Mass. Newman says in the Via Media, which he wrote, extraordinary book, he wrote it, they were the articles he wrote as a parson, and when he became a Catholic, he went through them and put in footnotes where he said, I now have changed, or here I was wrong. And this one on the Via Media, he doesn't put anything, he only quotes the doctors of the Church who held what he did. He was an extraordinary man. He says, first, as to material things, what do we mean when we speak of an object being present to us, the real presence? What do we mean by that? How do we define and measure its presence? To be blind uh, to a blind and deaf man, n- that only is present which he touches. Give him hearing, and the range of things present to him enlarges. Everything is present to him which he hears. Give him at length his sight, and the sun suddenly becomes present to him in the daytime and the myriads of stars at night. Presence, then, is a relative word depending on the channels of communication existing between the objects and the person to whom it is present. It is almost a correlative of the senses. I love this sentence. A fly may be as near to a building as a man, yet we do not, call the fly, do not call the building present to the fly because he cannot see it. We do call it present to the man because he can. A fly flying about, let's say, near the Empire State Building couldn't take it in. He could only take in a little bit of one window, whereas a man can take the whole thing in. So Newman goes on to say, after some other ways in which one body can affect another, he goes on to say that when you come to think of it at Mass, what God does is to abolish distance. We are totally wrong when we say God comes down onto the altar and we'd be just as right to say we go up to heaven. What happens is distance suddenly stops so that myself and our blessed Lord are present to each other and then he gives me his body in the way best suited for me to be nourished. Now, Newman, therefore, when he tells us to be mature, I think he's so very wise when he talks about things like purgatory and how crazy some of our images are there, they're babyish, anything about the Last Judgement, anything about heaven, we've got to have a mature view and not sell fairy tales which are quite innocent, mean well, but which give a totally wrong impression of the resurrection. And he mentions certain practices which he thinks were corrupt. He didn't mention this because he died before it. But I often think about that extraordinary thing we had—the uh, secret of Fatima. Now I don't know. I went to Fatima once. I saw the mother and father of the two of the little children, uh, but. Our Lady gave them no secret on the day they saw her. It was the only one child who's still a nun, I think, and still alive. She wrote down, so they say, a secret Our Lady gave her that I think Our Lady's going to convert Russia or something like that. And it was all sealed up and put in a safe. It's an extraordinary way that if God works through the mail <laughs> and have a letter and we know nothing about it, but it spread and spread and spread. I love Our Lady and I don't mind Fatima, but the odd thing is that we're not bound to believe in that thing at all. And yet you had people, oh, just before the Second World War, it spread all around the world that there was this secret. It's gone now. I don't know if it's true, but they say that Pope John the Twenty-Third tore it up. It's sort of very typical of him to do that, I think. They also say it was the bill for the Last Supper when they opened the envelope. (laughs) But the odd thing is, what do people in the world think if we imagine that our Blessed Mother would write a letter and have it put in a safe and opened on a certain day? If the Mohammedans did that, or if the Hindus, I'd certainly think they weren't the true church. Now, there was nothing wrong with Lucy. Lucy, she wrote down... As always happens, Father Martindale said, on the day when a saint has a vision, that's the only day you can believe them. Because after that, human nature is such that you add a bit and add a bit and more messages and suddenly people interpret it. And all of a sudden, what was perfectly right on the day you witnessed it suddenly becomes untrue. You see it in the law courts when, especially in the United States, where people are put on trial for about six years, I don't know how anybody gets up and gives evidence. I think you've forgotten the whole thing by then. So it could well be that Lucy, well, she thought she was good and all that, but the odd thing is you're never bound be to believe that. The Church is very strict on one point. You never need believe a private vision of another person ever. You can deny Lourdes, you can deny Fatima, you can deny Margaret Mary's visions of the Sacred Heart. We're not saying they're false, but they were to one person only. And they're not the deposit of faith and if we make them into the deposit of faith and talk about them as though they were all important then we can do very real harm uh, to the truth it's babies so therefore we I think ought to be very careful the Holy Spirit guiding us to be mature in what we say uh, the faith means otherwise if we talk baby stories and um, childish things People won't believe us any more than you believe your own children when they're babies and tell you extraordinary things they've seen in the garden. Cardinal Newman ends on maturity, and it's a good ending, with the maturity of three young men. And as it's very amusing, I think, and I love Daniel best, I thought we would end with that note. He does in his sermon on the Holy Ghost, how the Holy Ghost made these three young Jews prisoners in Babylon made them mature. Daniel and his friends, uh, they were eventually so much liked that they were posted or seconded uh, to the White House staff. Three of them went to the royal palace to serve like they do at the White House, to learn the, the language. And they did very well. And then they found to their horror that the food that was served in the canteen came from the king's table and was very good but had been offered to idols so Daniel didn't know what quite what to do he was a young man and he made great friends with the Chamberlain and he said to the Chamberlain look uh, we can't eat this take it away and the Chamberlain said well you I can't take it away because if the king hears I'll, he'll be curious with me the food given to the staff is always been offered to idols first so David Pleased with him, and uh, Daniel did, and then there's this, a splendid story where it says, Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief Cha- chamberlain had put in charge of them, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then see how we look in comparison with the other young men who eat from the royal table and treat your servants according to what you see. The Chamberlain acceded to this request and tested them for 10 days. After 10 days, they looked healthier and better fed, they'd been out jogging, um, than any of the young men who ate from the royal table. So the steward continued to take away the food and wine they were to receive and gave them vegetables. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and proficiency in all literature and science, and to Daniel, the understanding of all visions and dreams. Now, they were mature enough to to not want to offend the Chamberlain or the King, but yet to keep the rule. And I think it's rather nice, when we're talking about maturity, to take three young civil servants who did that. I'm very moved by it, because um, living on vegetables for ten days must be pretty awful. I went to give a retreat to the trappists last year. Wonderful men they are, and how saintly. Uh, but they don't eat meat or fish or eggs, they live mostly on bread and i being diabetic can't eat bread so I was an awful fix. I didn't like to say to them will you bring me a chop and then for me to eat a chop while they're all eating bread so I lived on squash for three days. They kept on saying can can we bring you anything else and I said no 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 father I love this is lovely. My God, by the third day, I vomit when I see squ- squash now. <laughs> Unlike Daniel, after three days, you could see something was going wrong. I am simply coming out of my ears. But it's a rather interesting thing that these young men, that they said, well, just see how healthy we'll look after ten days, and they did. God provided them with just the kind of promotion they wanted. So we'll end on that point, but what I would like to stress very much is that when I, uh, the text said when I was a child I put away the things of a child we've got to put away false images because that makes a mockery of the church I think for the Blessed Sacrament for children and everything we've got to try to explain how our Lord can give us his flesh to nourish our soul in other ways than with his whole body there I had an old brother in the society who one day when I was upset uh, St Mass he said oh when you broke the host I could hear our Lord's bones cracking I thought, my Lord, well, are we coming to next? And it's those sort of childish images. They're not bad. That's why Newman never said, I'd like, uh, corrected anybody. He only felt that if you have the Holy Spirit, you'll grow out of them. Then we ought never to promote devotions unless the church has approved. Private visions and revelations, you don't have to say the person wasn't holy. If they're canonized, you certainly accept them as saints. But you are no under no obligation to follow a private um, vision, and that would, if we all kept to that, then there wouldn't be so many churches in North Carolina.